You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hi, thanks for tuning in to Hold That Thought. Throughout the rest of February and into the spring, we're going to be talking a lot about cities. And for the very first episode of the series, I had the chance to talk with Dr. Suzanne Cowan, a postdoctoral fellow here at Washington University in St. Louis. In her work and teaching, both within the history department and within the architecture program at the Sam Fox School of Design, Dr. Cowan focuses on the past and future of cities. One of her focuses is the relationship between urban design and the social conditions of cities. It may seem obvious that urban planners and architects would have a social focus. After all, cities are more than a collection of buildings. They are places where human beings live, work, interact, but the influence of social factors on urban design has really shifted over the decades. So for the first part of our podcast, Cowan will give an overview of how social design took root in the 1960s and how it has evolved. A bit later on, she'll be talking about Pruitt Igo, a piece of local history, and also an infamous example of how urban design can have a negative social impact. Let's get started. A lot of the social design process came as a reaction to redevelopment planning, modernist large-scale urban plans in the 1960s. Uh, socially oriented design was a way to work with communities who were seeing their neighborhoods torn down or were trying to resist this technocratic planning from above. And so working with citizen groups in Boston, somewhat in New York City and San Francisco, places that were having these large scale demolition of slum neighborhoods or what were considered to be slum neighborhoods and then working with the communities to see how they wanted to envision the future of their neighborhood. So in the 1960s, as lower income neighborhoods were being threatened with demolition in order to make way for redevelopment, it makes sense that community members had a lot to say about what was happening in their neighborhoods. And finding and amplifying those voices was one approach to the type of design that Cowan is describing. But there were other methods as well. Another one really came more directly from the social sciences and was the approach of uh, social surveying, going out and interviewing and doing surveys and using these quantitative methods to try and understand the social needs of people. What types of surveys were being conducted and what sorts of data were being gathered? And how would this sort of data change the way that an architect or an urban planner would design a house or a public housing project or a city? So a lot of the surveys did uh, post-occupancy evaluation of buildings to see how did the designs actually function in reality? Did people actually use the social spaces? Um, how did people experience their homes, especially in public housing or large housing projects? Did small changes like having your own door versus a shared entrance or a private garden versus a communal garden affect the success of housing projects? And so it got down to where people were coming up with these design guidelines that architects could use based on the social research that they had done and giving recommendations for how to make space um, function better, to avoid problems like crime and public housing, to make people feel more comfortable in their homes. So it kind of worked at all scales from the level of the building to the level of the city. So we've heard about the community members themselves. 
and about the social scientists who are gathering data on community life and needs. But what about the planners and the architects? For the past two years, Cowan has been working on a documentary film called Design as a Social Act, in which she talked to many planners and designers from that era. I asked her to talk a little bit about the process of making the movie and what she's learned. So I started by trying to interview some of the professors I had had at University of California, Berkeley, who were really interested in the social aspects of design. And it was really interesting to hear about um, how in the 60s a lot of these designers seemed to be reacting against the education that they had had, um, this very technocratic approach to design, and then trying to think about a more participatory process and trying to address some of the failures that they saw going on in the 60s, and also the inspiration that they had of the civil rights movement, of Kennedy, of Martin Luther King, and trying to bring that kind of inspiration and community process into the architectural field. Um, one of the women that I interviewed, Claire Cooper Marcus, was a design professor at Berkeley, and uh, she was teaching during the time of the People's Park movement in Berkeley, which was a protest about how the university was co-opting some land and um, how the public wanted to use it for a park, but the university wanted to put a parking lot or build other buildings on it. And so she used uh, surveying techniques to find out what the neighbors felt about the plan and um, trying to really measure what the community felt rather than just having the loudest voices or the people with the most power be able to affect these kinds of decisions. Remember, we're still in the 1960s and 70s here. By the 1980s, there was a different story to tell. There also seemed by the 80s, both for it to be incorporated in as in some ways a mainstay of the design program, but at the same time it had lost its ideological vigor and it seemed to fade into the background. Now let's hold up a second. How did this shift happen in two decades or less? Part of the answer, money and politics. A lot of the funding of the 1970s for community-based organizing started to disappear under Reagan, and so, so there seemed to be a larger-scale political transition that was happening that made it harder for these groups to get the funding that they needed. The other part of the answer, changes within the fields of architecture and design. During the 60s and 70s, it was kind of a transition between design movements, and there was a reaction against high-style modernism, but there wasn't anything solid to put in its place. So there was this kind of moment of opportunity for the, everyone was exploring new ideas. But by the 80s, the movement of postmodernism had kind of taken hold. It had become a very formal movement. Architects became much more interested in design as an art rather than design as a social science. Here's where we turn to the story of Pruitt Igo. Especially if you're from the St. Louis area, you've probably heard the name before. This housing project was the subject of a 2011 documentary, and even though it was demolished decades ago, it's still known as a model for how not to do public housing. To find out how it all started and what went wrong, let's start with some background information. Pruitt Igo is a neighborhood in North St. Louis. Uh, it's in the Carr Square neighborhood, which is just north of the downtown area. So it's in the northeast area, and it was a neighborhood that was 
since the 19, early 1900s, usually a neighborhood that was poorer, that was an older part of the city, and the housing by the 1950s had gotten really uh, run down. It was considered to be a slum. It was very dense. And so as part of the redevelopment of St. Louis, there was a plan to build public housing in this area, to tear down the slums and improve the quality of housing. It all sounds well-intentioned, right? And this course of action was not unique to St. Louis. This was following national plans to do slum clearance and to do public housing. In the 40s, legislation had been passed that said any new public housing that had would be built had to be accompanied by tearing down uh, housing, slum housing in that neighborhood. So the slums were torn out, new high-rise buildings went in, and at first everybody was happy. These developments are run by the St. Louis Housing Authority. This is a far cry from the crowded, collapsing tenements that many of these people have known. Here in bright new buildings with spacious grounds, they can live. Live with indoor The first generation who lives there were very happy for the improved housing conditions that they had. But major problems were just around the corner. Some of the policies that desegregated housing legally actually led to the flight of white occupants from these public housing projects, um, which basically led to a concentration of poor African Americans living in this development. And over time, the city wasn't able to maintain the buildings. The national funding was only to build them, not to maintain them. And so there was major economic problems with this model of housing. The situation deteriorated quickly. Pruitt-Igoe became known for its crime and poverty, and the buildings themselves were falling apart within a decade. In December of 1972, less than 20 years after first being occupied, the first tower was demolished. Today is demolition day at Pruitt-Igoe. Here in the late afternoon, with weather moving in from the west and helicopters hovering above, Door Wrecking Company will explode the supporting columns from an 11-story vacant high-rise. And then the question became, what can we learn from all this? Who's to blame? Some people blamed the occupants, some people blamed the city. Architects said it was the death of modernism and blamed the architecture. And it's been kind of a long-term uh, case study in how we can understand the power that architecture and urban planning policies have, but also uh, the limitations. And um, it's been looked to as kind of a negative model that any new development should uh, try to overcome. If Pruitt-Igoe is the negative model, now, in 2013, is there a positive model? According to Cowan, in recent years, the answer has often been the concept of new urbanism. Which rejected a lot of the modernist ideas that were realized in Pruitt-Igoe, the high-rise, the super block that faced buildings away from the street into public open spaces, but uh, seemed to ignore the street. And so new urbanism really looks to have as many eyes on the street as possible, to have smaller scale development, 
to have private entrances rather than public entrances, to have mixed use rather than single use, to have a mixed class and income. And so that's been a model that's been put forward. And in many ways, it's very successful, but it also has its limitations as far as not always not always addressing the real economic problems as far as how, how do you house low-income people. The question of how to house low-income people is not a new problem. And that's part of the reason why new urbanism, as implied by the name, is an approach to design that is linked so closely with city life. I think that it's mostly been applied in the urban context because a lot of these methods came from at their earliest roots from the 19th century and um, as a response to the problems of the city. And so London School of Economics and the kind of professionalization and academic development of social research really came as a response to the growth of cities in the 19th century and to industrialization. So I think a lot of those techniques are still uh, really relevant and most needed and most applied in cities. The problems of city life that Dr. Cowan describes certainly are still issues in St. Louis, long after the demolition of the Pruitt-Igo housing project. To wrap up today's podcast, Cowan describes how she hopes to get involved going forward. Right now I'm just getting to know some of the different community groups that are working uh, in the north side and trying to understand who's organizing and how and what kind of projects are happening here in St. Louis. And I hope by next year to get connected with um, some groups so that I can bring students into the community so that they can see how the ideas get applied in the real world. They can see the struggles that happen because it's great how idealistic and optimistic students are, but it's also good for them to understand the challenges in realizing those kind of uh, design or policy goals and to understand the people that they're designing for. Many thanks to Suzanne Cowan for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to her faculty profile on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustel.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustel.edu. Thanks for listening.